Oh, wait, no, 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than three kilometres from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Thanks, Catherine. Let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us uh, through your words, through the words that I'm about to speak as well, that... Uh, you would reveal yourself to us, uh, that for those of us who, who don't know, that we would meet you for the first time uh, and know that you love us. Uh, Lord, for those of us who do know you, that you would assure us of your presence with us, uh, of who you are and of what you have promised us. Lord, build us up uh, in a holy faith. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Uh, A few years ago, uh, an American neurosurgeon by the name of Paul Kalanithi was diagnosed with terminal cancer uh, just as he was about to finish his uh, neurosurgical training. And in the last year of his life, he wrote a book about his experience. Uh, He died, uh, but before he he died, he wrote this book called When Breath Becomes Air, which uh, has become a bestseller uh, and a very well-known book. Uh, And in that book, he pointedly writes this. He says, I began to realize that coming in such close contact with my own mortality had changed both nothing and everything. Before my cancer was diagnosed, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. After the diagnosis, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. But now I knew it acutely. The problem wasn't really a scientific one. The fact of death is unsettling. Like Paul uh, Kalanithi, we all know that we're going to die. We just don't know when that will be. But for the most part, I think, we don't worry about it too much. But as death gets closer and closer, we, because we age or, or because we're struck down with illness or because someone that we love Uh, and who's close to us suddenly dies, whatever the reason, as death gets closer to us, it's unsettling. We know the reality of death, but now we know it acutely. And maybe the most unsettling part of death is is, is often the uncertainty that people have about what happens after death. 
It's for that reason that we're taking the time here at the branch to think through what does happen after death, to, to kind of think about it, to think about what uh, we as a church say, what the Bible says, what Christians say, but also to, to try and think through what people uh, in our society say, that what, what our friends say, uh, what the people that we love say about what happens after this life. We've asked people what they think, people around Launceston, and this morning we're considering the second most popular response, which is that idea that nothing happens after this life, that once we die, that's the end of our existence, that we cease to be. Uh, I admitted last week to rereading the uh, Harry Potter books at the end of last year, uh, but I also mentioned how I was struck in those books about how much they reflect on the reality of death and the reality of life after death. And in one particular scene, uh, Harry is standing at the grave of his parents uh, and inscribed on their tombstones are the words from the Bible, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Uh, Harry doesn't know what that means or where that comes from. uh, And Hermione has to explain it uh, to him, as as always in the books, Hermione has to explain uh, what's going on. And she says it means you know, living beyond death. It means life after death. And Harry thinks to himself, but they were not living, thought Harry. They were gone. The empty words could not disguise the fact that his parents' mouldering remains lay beneath snow and stone, indifferent, unknowing. For many people, I think that's their view of death. And any idea to the contrary is just empty words. That when we die, our mouldering remains lie beneath snow and stone, indifferent, unknowing. But is death really the end? Or can death really be defeated? Jesus certainly claimed that death wasn't the end and that death could be defeated, and Christians have followed him in believing that. And in what follows this morning, I want to spend some time thinking about the idea that death is the end, so thinking about that idea, and then also uh, thinking about the other idea, the the, the Bible's idea, that death is not the end, uh, and explaining why the Bible says that. So before we think about what the Bible has to say about life after death, I want to spend some time thinking about the idea that nothing happens after this life uh, and to think a little bit more about the implications of that view and, on, and the kind of the foundations of that view as well. So generally speaking, the view that nothing happens after this life is based on the idea that we are simply what we see. We are these bodies and nothing more. We have no soul, we're just flesh and blood and when we die that that's the end of us. Philosophically, that's, that view is called materialism or philosophical materialism. So it's not, this is not like worldliness materialism. Uh, this is another way of using that word. Materialism, uh, is, that's all that exists. Materialism holds that nothing exi- exists except the material world. Uh, to put it crudely, it holds that the only thing that exists is the world that we can touch, taste, see, smell and so on. Uh, Or to put it negatively, it holds that there's no such thing as the spiritual world or God or anything like that. 
But I want to sort of push back, I guess, on that idea a little bit, that we're nothing more than flesh and blood and what we see. Let me say three things about uh, the materialistic view. In the first place, it's based on a questionable assumption. So the assumption is that the only things that can exist are the things that can be investigated scientifically. So if science can't uh, deduce an, uh, an experiment, think of an experiment to, in order to test it, uh, if science can't verify it, then it mustn't exist. But there are lots of things that can't be investigated scientifically. Uh, for instance, science can't prove that Mark Knopfler wrote the song Telegraph Road. Some of you probably have never heard of the song Telegraph Road. And you go, what on earth? Well, it's 17 minutes of the greatest music that you'll ever hear. The guitar solo alone, I think, goes for about seven minutes. Uh, it's just, it's remarkable. Uh, science can't prove that Mark Knopfler wrote that song. Science can't prove that that is one of my favourite songs. It's, that you, can't, you can't create an experiment that can decisively prove that. Not in a scientific sense. Uh, nor can science prove that it's one of the most epic pieces of music ever written, even though we all know that to be self-evidently true. <laughs> science can't prove uh, those kinds of things. And the thing is, our life is built on those kinds of ideas, right? Our lives are not just built on things that science uh, has shown to be demonstrably true. There's so much uh, left in the rest of our lives which science has nothing to say about. Materialism is often the result then of an overconfidence in the powers of science and also an overestimation in the breadth of scientific explanation. Uh, even the fact that our thoughts exist isn't open to scientific verification. So you might be able to track neurons firing in the brain. Uh, you can track the response of people to questions and images and sounds and all that kind of stuff. You can do functional MRI imaging and all that kind of stuff. But you can't scientifically verify thought. You can only infer it. The scientist Sir John Eccles was awarded the Nobel Prize for research on the brain and he once stated that the brain is a machine that, the that a ghost can operate. That is, his, his point was that the physical brain alone is not sufficient to explain consciousness. Or listen to this from another neuroscientist, Mario, Mario Beauregard. Materialism has no workable science model for consciousness and no idea how to acquire one. That is, not only can we explain it, we don't even know where to begin in trying to seek to explain it. So the idea that death is the end and that we're nothing more than what we see is based on a questionable assumption. Is it really true that the only things that exist are the things that can be proved in a scientific experiment or that can be written down in a mathematical equation? Second, materialism makes life meaningless. If we're just a pile of atoms and cells and organs that are jumbled together for a period of time, uh, but then they stop working, that they rot, are reabsorbed into kind of the endless cycle of decay, it's hard to avoid then the conclusion that our lives have no purpose. If all we are is atoms and cells and, and so on, then all that we think and do is just the outcome of chemical or physical processes. 
It's the outcome of fixed laws, predetermined. Our whole lives are entirely mechanistic, determined by the laws of nature. Some people have tried to appeal to randomness to try and sneak meaning in through the back door, but it's hard to see how an appeal to randomness recovers meaning. It seems just as destructive of of meaning as uh, a life predetermined by laws and rules. In other words, materialism pushes you to one of two possible explanations for our lives, for our thoughts, our emotions, and everything that we experience. Either everything is just the fixed outcome of laws, the laws of, uh, of the universe, or everything uh, is entirely random, or, or some measure of uh, combination of the two. So you could, atri- you could achieve your dreams for your life. So What? Why bother? What's the point? Why not end it all today? Why does pain matter? It's just uh, a chemical response. It's just nerves firing. Right? It's, just an ele- it's just an electrical signal passing down a nerve fibre. Who cares? Why does love matter? It's just a chemical response. Bertrand Russell was a famous materialist uh, and philosopher uh, who took his view to its logical conclusions. So listen to what Bertrand Russell had to say about the meaning of life. He said that man is a product of causes which had no prevision of the end that they were achieving, that is, that uh, man is just the result of blind chance. Uh, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental co-locations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labours of the human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins." All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. The only foundation for life is unyielding despair about its hopelessness, its purposelessness, its meaninglessness. According to Bertrand Russell, the only basis for meaning in a material world is unutterable despair at the emptiness of life. So materialism is based on a questionable assumption. Is it really true that all that we experience, the only things that we can really experience are things that can, are scientifically verifiable? Second, materialism makes life meaningless. Third, it makes death meaningless. Instinctively, we find death painful. But if death is just the end of a biological machine, then why should we be sad about it? Why not just kind of move on? If we're all just matter, then we shouldn't really feel any sadder about losing a friend or a parent or a child than we should about losing our favourite mug. It's all just matter. It's all just the same matter, conveniently kind of bound together in this form and then in that form 
at some later point in time. But also, if death is just the end, then we shouldn't care about things like the suicide epidemic. But we are clearly, as a nation, very disturbed and rightfully disturbed about the uh, rates of suicide in our country. The, 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 The suicide rate in Australia is distressingly high. But if death is just the end of our biological machinery, then why does it matter if someone chooses to take their life? The reason it matters is not just because of someone's untapped potential or they didn't reach the goals that they set for themselves. The reason it matters is because that person is valuable. That person matters. And because the absence of that person matters. The absence of that person is a genuine loss. We rightly feel that suicide is a tragedy. I lost my aunt to suicide. How perverse to say that that doesn't matter. You might have lost someone to suicide as well. How perverse to say that that doesn't matter. But that's the implication, do you see, of the materialistic worldview. Interestingly, the atheist philosopher Peter Singer has argued that human life is not more precious than any other kind of life. It's not more precious than animal life. He's argued for the legitimacy of killing babies after they're born if they have disabilities. He's advocated for euthanasia, for those suffering from dementia. In part, at least, he's able to argue that because we're all just things in his scheme. We're all, we're all just stuff. No one life has intrinsic meaning. Uh, and yet, as someone pointed out this week, when Peter Singer's mother was suffering from Alzheimer's, he couldn't bring himself to advocate for her death. His philosophical scheme, which seemed so wonderful on paper, proved to be so much more complicated when he faced the death of somebody that he loved. But the materialistic worldview has no room for that love, no room for that sense of loss. As the philosopher Roger Scruton has said, anybody who has had to choose between saving a child or a cat from drowning, between feeding his small surplus to his starving neighbour or his starving rabbits, between nursing a dying friend or leaving him out for the vultures, will know that Singer's view is nonsense. We instinctively know to be true uh, that that view uh, has no, holds no water. The Bible says that's because as human beings we've been made in the image of God. We instinctively feel that human life is valuable because we've been made in the image of God as creatures that relate and love and laugh and build and make and work. Everything in the world has value because it was made by God but as human beings we have a special value because we have been made to reflect God. Materialism leaves us with a thin view of life. It leaves us with a thin view of the world. It isn't philosophically robust enough to hold up all the meaning and the significance that we intrinsically feel that life holds and that death holds. It's like trying to hold water in a, in a sieve. It doesn't work. I mentioned before the neurosurgeon, the late neurosurgeon Paul Kalanithi. Listen to what he wrote 
about how his view of materialism changed. He wrote, Although I had been raised in a devout Christian family where prayer and scripture readings were a nightly ritual, I, like most scientific types, came to believe in the possibility of a material conception of reality, an ultimately scientific worldview that would grant a complete metaphysics or a complete kind of view of reality. Minus outmoded concepts like souls, God, and bearded white men in robes. I spent a good chunk of my 20s trying to build a frame for such an endeavour. The problem, however, eventually became evident. To make science the arbiter of metaphysics is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, and meaning. To consider a world that is self-evidently not the world that we live in. That is, if you try and build a materialistic world, it doesn't match up. The philosophy doesn't match up with the world that you experience. It can't describe the world that you experience because it's too thin. It's too empty. What was his remedy to the emptiness of the materialist worldview? He writes, Yet I return to the central values of Christianity, sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness, because I found them so compelling. As Paul Kellenithi points out, life is empty if death is the end and matter is all there is, but Christianity provides compelling virtues and a compelling explanation of life. Materialism is too thin, but Christianity is thick. That is, Christianity presents us with a thick view of the world, a world which can explain the complexities of life, a world that can explain the losses that we feel, the the hopes that we have, the longing for eternity that we have, a a thick worldview that explains the, the significance that we place in our own lives and in the lives of others. Materialism is thin, fragile, incomplete. The worldview of Christianity is thick, complex, multifaceted, diverse, and comprehensive. Well, what does the Bible have to say? In the passage that we read just before, Jesus makes some profound claims, some claims that... uh, to a materialist, to someone who believes that death is the end, uh, seem extraordinary and perhaps even slightly crazy. But Jesus claims to have power over life and death. The context is that one of his friends has died. His friend Lazarus has died. And a little earlier, Jesus had been told that Lazarus was sick and near to death. But instead of rushing to help his friend, Jesus makes sure to stay where he is He's keen to make sure that by the time he turns up, Lazarus is well and truly dead. Because Jesus has a point to make about his relationship uh, to life and death and our relationship uh, to Jesus. When Jesus gets to the tomb, he meets Lazarus' sister, Martha. She's obviously upset. Uh, She says to Jesus, If he'd been there, she knows that he would have been able to heal Lazarus. Martha believes that Jesus had the power to heal sick people. And yet even now, in the face of her brother's death, she still trusts Jesus. uh, And she says to him, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. Well, Martha doesn't have any trouble believing that because... 
Jews at the time of, uh, of Jesus, Jews in Jesus' day, believed that at the end of history, God would raise from the dead all his people, the people who'd known him, who trusted him, who'd, who'd followed him and given their lives to him. Uh, that's a pretty easy position to get to philosophically. If you believe that God created the world out of nothing, uh, then it makes perfect sense to think that God could not only give life for the first time, but that God could restore to life people who had died. He could uh, give them life again. So Martha says, yeah, I know he'll rise again uh, in the resurrection of the last day. I I know that, Jesus. I I believe that. I I believe in, in who God is. But Jesus essentially says to her, no, no, that's actually not what I'm talking about. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus makes the extraordinary claim that resurrection and life are bound up in him. They're bound up in his person, in who he is. And whoever knows him and whoever holds on to him and loves him will share in his resurrection and life. Whoever believes in him or entrusts themselves to his love and care, that person will live again. And not just they will live again, they'll die and be raised to life again, but more than that, that person will never die. That is, while this mortal body that we have, while that will uh, fade away, while that may lie mouldering in the ground under snow and stone, while that might be uh, done away with, that person will go on living. That life will go on. They will go to be with Jesus. And one day that person's body will be raised from the dead, raised from the, from, from the grave, raised from uh, the mouldering remains. That person will be restored. That body will be restored. Uh, in a new creation, in a world put right. Resurrection and life are not things that we have in ourselves. Resurrection and life don't just come to us when we die. No, uh, they're not things that we earn either by doing good or by being good people. Resurrection and life come to people who know Jesus and who love Jesus, who are linked up with Jesus. And those are not just nice sentiments, but... Jesus proves that they're true by doing an incredible miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead in front of all those people who were watching. A few verses later on, after the passage that we read, Jesus stands in front of the tomb and he asks the people to move away the stone covering the entrance. Uh, Lazarus' sister doesn't want to do it. Uh, Clearly that would be a distressing thing to do, to open the the, uh, grave back up again. But it would be distressing not least because the body had been in the tomb for four days. It would, it would well and truly be stinking by now. But they move the stone away and Jesus prays this prayer. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays in order that when Lazarus walks out of the tomb alive, people would know that Jesus has been sent by God the Father with the message of resurrection and life. And so Jesus calls out for Lazarus to come out of the tomb and out he walks. 
wrapped up in his grave, grave clothes, but alive and well and whole. Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life and he shows that those aren't just empty words by raising Lazarus from the dead for all those people to see and to witness. And he shows that those are not just empty words when he himself was raised from the dead after dying on a cross. But how come Jesus is the source of life? How does that work? Well, to understand, we need to understand why it is that we die. The Bible says that we die because we've rejected God who is the source of life. We're like, we're like a fish who tries to find freedom living on the land. We try to live on the land only to find out that we need the sea to breathe. We try to live without God only to discover that we need God to live. But because we've rejected God and lived without God, there's this big wall that stands in between God and us. It's a wall that the Bible calls sin, our rejection of God. And you and I can't climb over that wall to get back to our God who is the source of life. And so God himself did the most extraordinary thing. He came to us. He came to us in the person of his son. He demolished the wall that stood between us and him when Jesus died on a Roman cross. Jesus came to die the death that we deserve for turning away from God. He died in our place instead of us so that we might be free to live with the God who is the source of life. And here's the thing. Because Jesus has opened up the way back to God, then if we link up with God through what Jesus has done, then because God lives forever, we live forever as well. It's that simple. Jesus clears the path back to God, and God is eternal. And when we know God and belong to him through what Jesus has done, then God shares with us his eternal life and his eternal joy and his eternal happiness. In the words of the British pastor and evangelist Rico Tice, this piece of dust, that is who we are, this piece of dust, I'll live forever because I'm linked up with God through what Jesus has done. And that changes everything because it gives me eternity. If we link up with Jesus, we get eternity with God through him. Well, before I finish, I just want to put before you then two contrasting examples. We've seen, we've looked at materialism, and I've tried to show that that, I think, is a thin view of the world. We've looked at what the Bible says uh, about how Jesus, if we link up with Jesus, we get eternity with God. Before we finish, I just want to give two contrasting examples of how our view of what happens after this life affects how we live now and how we die now as well. Uh, in November of last year, a dying 14-year-old British girl won the right uh, in court to have her body cryogenically frozen. Uh, as The Guardian reported, in the hope that she can be brought back to life at a later time. In a letter to the court before she died, the girl wrote... 
I've been asked to explain why I want this unusual thing done. I'm only 14 years old and I don't want to die, but I know I'm going to. I think being cryopreserved gives me a chance to be cured and woken up, even in hundreds of years' time. I don't want to be buried underground. I want to live and live longer, and I think that in the future they might find a cure for my cancer and wake me up. I want to have this chance. This is my wish. There's lots of questions uh, over the viability of cryonics and whether it could ever be made to work. But even if it can be made to work, would you want to come back and live in another 50, 100, 200 years in a world as broken as this one? Would you want to rise to life, be resuscitated to life again in a, in a world similarly broken, only to die again, only to suffer again? Would you want to come back and live in a world where all the people you knew and loved were dead and buried themselves? What kind of hope is that? It's a thin hope, isn't it? As one Christian writer reflected, isn't it tragic that the very thing this girl was longing for was exactly what is being held out in the gospel? Isn't it tragic that she put her trust in a quasi-scientific fairy tale for her hope of resuscitation life rather than the resurrection life the Lord Jesus Christ achieved when he rose from the dead on the third day. The same writer highlights a radically different approach uh, for Christians by pointing out a story from Don Cormack's book on the fate of Christians in Cambodia under the brutal Khmer Rouge regime some decades ago. Uh, A family had been captured and were due to be executed, and uh, Don Cormack quotes a report of their death. Uh, He writes, The family were ordered to dig a large grave for themselves, then consenting to Haim's, that is the father's request, for a moment to prepare themselves for death, father, mother and children, hands linked, knelt together around the gaping pit. Then in panic, one of Haim's young sons leapt to his feet, bolted into the surrounding forest and disappeared. Haim jumped up and with amazing coolness and authority prevailed upon the Khmer Rouge not to pursue the lad, but allow him to call the boy back. The knots of onlookers peering around the trees, the Khmer Rouge and the stunned family still kneeling at the graveside looked on in awe as Haim began calling his son, pleading with him to return and die together with his family. What comparison, my son, he called out, stealing a few more days of life in that forest, a fugitive, wretched and alone, to joining your family here momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. After a few tense minutes, the bushes parted and the lad weeping walked slowly back to his place with the kneeling family. Now we're ready to go. Haim told the Khmer Rouge. But by this time, there was not a soldier standing there who had the heart to raise his hoe to deliver the death blow on the backs of these noble heads. Ultimately, this had to be done by the Khmer Rouge commune chief who had not witnessed these things. But few of those watching doubted that as each of these Christians' bodies toppled silently into the earthen pit which the victims themselves had prepared. 
their souls soared heavenward to a place prepared by their Lord. What happens after this life? If we link up with Jesus, we live forever because he lives forever. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, says Jesus, will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we confess that uh, we're not always conscious of the reality of death. Uh, and Lord, some of us are not prepared for death. Lord, help us to think deeply about uh, what happens after death. Uh, And help us to think deeply too about the implications that that has for life. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see the emptiness of a world constructed on a scientific, materialist worldview. Help us to see the comprehensiveness and the thickness, the richness uh, of a world... Uh, in which you are at the centre. A world understood according to your revelation in the Bible. But Lord, more than that, help us to understand and to know Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Help every one of us to link up with him uh, and through him to gain eternity. Not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are uh, and because only because we've linked up with your eternal son, Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.